Hello, I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening and also to explain why you might hear ads like this before, during, or even after an episode. We're a small but mighty team here at Realm, and to help fund our shows, we promote products or services that we think you'd enjoy from a variety of sponsors. If any of our ads interest you, one of the best ways to support us is by visiting the link or using the promo code in the ad. It's pretty much a win-win since you can get some great deals and we can keep making awesome shows like this one. You can also visit realm.fm slash partners for more information about our sponsors and how to access the different promotions. Thanks again for joining us in our corner of the universe. Listen away. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world. That ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. And we're back. Welcome to the show. I'm Marco Palmieri. And I'm Nicole Otto. In our last episode, we shared part one of this unsettling tale about the dark and disturbing life of a vampire familiar. So let's jump right back into it. Here is part two of That Story Isn't the Story, written by John Wiswell and voiced by Vikas Adam. Anton moves slowly. He creeps through the front door physically feeling like whatever happened to Luis will ooze out and suffocate him. It is a tangible panic he has to fight to walk through. Luis sits against the wall, using one of the sofa cushions as a backrest, watching Captain America Winter Soldier for the hundredth time. He turns his attention from Steve Rogers to Anton. The motion makes the wadded bandage on the side of his neck crinkle. Anton asks, What happened? Random accident, Luis says, muting the TV. The heroes keep fighting wordlessly. I was working near the highway, clearing brush and crap. I paused to catch my breath and somebody bumped into me. Car almost wiped my shit. Somebody hit you? Anton can see it happening. Scrawny Luis rubbing his eyes and a shadow lunging out of the trees to toss him in front of traffic. Walter had warned that there were going to be consequences. The driver said he saw a white girl. Neither of us was exactly looking at her, you know. She ran off. Wouldn't be the first meth head running around out here. He shrugs, then winces and touches the bandage. I'm just getting my mind off it. Want to play Terraria? It was a woman then. Pavla and Joanna could have done it. Mr. Bird has his familiars do everything for him. They are his hands. So he's showing Anton. Showing him how a familiar is supposed to behave. Anton asks, She pushed you into traffic? Louise says, Nah, man. If somebody wanted to yeet my ass into traffic, I would have known. This was, like... I would have thought I tripped if the driver didn't tell me she was there. 
and I dodged the car with my super reflexes. Chill. Too much doesn't make sense. Anton leans against the frame of the front door, mulling the attack. Why did Mr. Bird order Luis to almost die? He's the sort to burn down this house with all of them inside it. The only reason Anton isn't dead already is that Mr. Bird wants him back. Luis scratches at the adhesive of the bandage on his neck. Before he knows it, Anton is approaching him. The bandage is a sanitary white rectangle. There's no seeing what is underneath. Judging its size, Anton feels his own mouth for the size of his teeth. Anton asks, Did you get cut in the fall? Yeah, cut myself up. I don't know what I fell on. My luck. A scrape? Nah, it got me deep. Luis mimes, stabbing himself in the throat with a sword, with a comical expression. Must have been a rock. That expression and that mental image tell Anton that he has to go back to Mr. Bird. He has to go trade himself to protect Luis and Gregory from what may have already happened. Anton kneels over Luis, looking for any blood spotting through the bandage. None is visible. He asks, could you show it to me? Luis says, what? Anton is crouching over Luis now, trying not to look manic, trying not to look like someone whose heart is about to rupture out of their chest. I need to, you know, can I make sure? Grigori already looked at it. I'm good. Did it feel like something bit you? Luis looks aside without turning his body. I'm trying to watch a movie here. You mind? Anton isn't thinking. The thoughts are too heavy to lift. Action is easier, and he has to do something. It's for Luis's safety. Luis reaches for the remote, and Anton reaches for the bandage. Man, quit it. I'll go back to him. He can't take you. I promise, I promise, I promise. Dude, fuck off of me. One of Anton's hands nests in Luis's t-shirt, and the other goes for the bandage. He yanks at both, and Luis shoves him in the chest. Anton rocks backward, then surges forward again. All he can see is the loose bandage and the infected pink flesh of the cut underneath. He can't see the size or shape of the injury. He needs to see it closer. He needs to be sure that he didn't get this boy cursed. Thick arms circle Anton's belly, and he is in the air, a flying feeling that reminds him of when Mr. Bird used to hit him. His throat buzzes, and he promises that he'll go back if they don't take Luis. No one is hitting him. Grigori is here, dragging him away from the house. Anton tries to explain, and he can't. Not through the hysterical shrieking that overtakes his mouth. The two of them go for a drive. Anton is terrified that Grigori is taking them to the city and will dump him at that dark townhouse. It would be right. He's a problem that needs to go back where he came from. And he needs to go back. 
his pain can plug the hole his escape made. He should have taken the ride with Walter. Then nobody would have attacked Luis. They don't visit the city. They roll a few miles into the pines to the view of a trail that is half hiking path and half knotty tree roots that serve as natural stairs. The entrance is decorated with used solo cups and cigarette butts. Grigori stays in the car, taking a long drink from his old water bottle that he refills from the tap every morning. Its label is long gone. There are so many shadows under the pines. Any of them could be Mr. Bird. Grigori says, You need therapy. I know you do, and I wish I could afford it for you. It's a shithole country. You don't owe me anything. I'll be fine. Man, you're clearly scared. I can see the fear when you're happy. Does my place make you feel unsafe? Anton whips his head back and forth. No, no, no. Did I do something to make you scared? Grigori sets the water bottle aside. Because I don't think Luis did anything. He's a sweet boy. I'm not entitled to know all your shit. But I need to know what's setting you off like that. That can't happen again. I wouldn't hurt him. You were hurting him. I need to know what caused that. Anton owes him so much. Even if Grigori doesn't believe him, he deserves to hear what he wants to hear. How can he shape it so that he'll understand? There's a man. I mean, he's not a man. He's sort of... Anton trails off immediately. There is no way to describe the shadows with a mouth that controlled his life for three years. Grigori asks, if he's not a man, what is he? Let's say he's a man. Okay. This is the guy that ran the little cult you lived in? He preys on certain kinds of people. Immigrants. People without families. I think his oldest member was a drug addict. Well, I'm glad you're out of there. I think I should go back. Grigori rests a broad palm against the backrest of Anton's seat. His fingers sink into the cushion. Buddy, that is not happening. I don't know. When you called me, you said you were going to die if you stayed. He had phrased it like that. It had felt too much to confess that he'd kill himself if he stayed. Now Anton wonders if killing himself is the answer. It would give Mr. Bird no satisfaction, no returned slave. And it will give them no reason to keep harassing Luis and Grigori. Anton, Grigori says, speak to me, man. The car is real. His friend is real. The conversation is real. Anton speaks. The three others tracked me down. They caught me on my way home a few nights ago. Holy shit. They came out here? You should have said, I've got a baseball bat they can meet. 
They said I had to come back or there would be consequences. They said you had to do what they said or they'd attack Luis? Not exactly. Grigori worms his tall body around the driver's seat so he can face Anton dead on. There's no escaping his warm, overworked eyes. The man says, look, I'm not attacking you. I put you up in my place. I got you out of that cult. I'm listening to you now. So come with me, okay? Anton breathes. Okay. What do these people say, exactly? The exact phrasing is murky. A series of panics has mashed it up like a bad remix in his head. He knows a few things about it, though. It was short. They didn't have to say much. Was it specific? Anton thinks. No, it wasn't. Anton speaks. No, it wasn't. Did they say they'd push somebody into traffic? No. Did they say they'd attack one of us at work? They didn't have to say that. People make vague threats all the time. Grigori falls into his seat. Yeah, they do. Do you remember my mom? Mrs. Caravaggio is an ancient story. Anton has to search into the dusty archives of his mind for a vague image of that woman with the constant smell of menthols and the beautiful black hair. The last time Anton saw her was middle school. When Anton's family had sheltered Grigori, they didn't see her all that year or ever again. She disappeared into the chasm that was her life. Anton says, yeah, I remember her. She was the master of vague threats. She was? Whatever happened, she said she planned it. One time she said if I didn't scrub the basement floor, she'd have to punish me. Two days later, our power got cut because she spent all our money doing whatever else, not that I knew. She said that was my punishment for not scrubbing hard enough. It worked, too. I begged her to bring the power back. Anton squeezes his hands together into one messy fist and looks between his fingers in the minuscule gaps as though he'll find himself inside. The threats meant that when there wasn't food, it was my fault. When dad didn't come for his weekend, it was my fault. It made me paranoid. How many times has he begged Mr. Bird for forgiveness for things he didn't do? For things he didn't do wrong? The answer is not in the minuscule gaps between his fingers. He asks his friend, What happened to your mom? Do you ever see her? That story is not the story I'm telling today, man. Anton breathes. Right. I'm sorry. I'm telling you what I did for me, what you've got to do for you. She doesn't matter to the story of how I survived. I just don't see how you survived. If she controlled everything in your life, what did you do? Grigori holds out his palm with all its calluses and grime. It's another offer of touch.
You know that part. I came and lived with your family. They don't want me anymore. Yeah, but I do. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. The drizzle makes working on the Fleming's new shed futile. It's an unusually chilly precipitation, and so Anton quits early. His body is beat anyway. Sluggish like it has the brain fog instead of his head for once. At least he can use some of the plastic tarp as a poncho for the long walk home. If he's lucky, Grigori will leave the cemetery early and drive along this road on the way. Around the first bend, still inside of the Fleming's property, Walter waits under a black crocodile skin umbrella. The car is parked on the shoulder of the road. The rear left window is open a sliver. A gloom festers inside. Anton strains to see the mouth, to see the white of the teeth that long for his flesh. Already his jeans are damp with warmer things than the rain. Walter's acid voice splashes him. You're coming with us, now. At first, Anton licks his lips and averts his eyes to the ground. The old habits of weakness. It's a smaller us than before. Walter stands alone on the road, and perhaps with Mr. Bird in the car. Anton has to wonder where the twins are. Is Louise safe? Is this a distraction to keep him away until they've attacked? Anton says, I have to get home. This isn't an offer. This is what's going to happen. Anton tells his feet to get moving. A puddle grows underneath him. Walter says, you're going to help us find wherever Pavla and Joanna ran off to. Your leaving made them think they could leave, and you're going to show them you made mistakes. That none of us can live without Mr. Bird. It's too much in too few words. The twins can't have left Mr. Bird, and they can't be utterly missing. Mr. Bird knows everything about them. He has to know where they are. He made them try to kill Louise. Unless being forced to attack Louise was too much. Unless that is why they ran. Anton mumbles, I'm going home and taking a hot shower. He imagines the warm beads hitting and streaking over his face. It will be the opposite of this rain. He thinks on it refusing to let his mind cave to the panic or stillness. 
if he focuses. He can feel the warm water on his legs. Walter says, you're going to make them come back or there are going to be consequences. The young man shifts as he threatens Anton, revealing how badly he's bleeding. Four ugly circles of gore leak through his undershirts, streaking down the fabric like little red ties. Despite the coverage of the plastic tarp, Anton's trousers are soaked. It's especially wet along his inner thighs. Warmth trickles from the old bites, streaking down to tickle the backs of his knees. So Mr. Bird is furious with them both. Get in the car, Walter says, or there will be consequences. More consequences? Anton asks. He can't get Grigori's mother out of his head. That vague memory of a woman who used vagueness to seem omnipotent. He looks for her face in the partially rolled down window of the car. All that lurks there are shadows. He says, I don't believe in your consequences. I believe in a shower. Walter says, If you don't come with us right now, we are taking Grigori Caravaggio. Anton digs his heels into the road. What? You won't know when Mr. Bird will come for him. You can't. You won't know if it's when you're together and you'll have to watch, or when you're apart and there will be no one to hear him weeping. Mr. Bird will sink his teeth into Grigori's flesh and make him a familiar in your place. Anton's arms drop, and the plastic lowers to his hips. The cold drizzle blots at his hair and face. This is too much. He says, you won't. Grigori's not weak like us. He won't break. Walter sneers with crooked teeth. It won't be hard to take away the things he relies on. He'll be weaker than you in no time. And it will be your fault. Can Anton run away? No. He's unsure if he can walk. He's unsure of everything because anxiety cuts through everything, feelings chewing ideas and dragging them into the mire. He so badly wants his mind to shut off, to kill those awful visions of where Mr. Bird will bite Grigori. He wants to finish building the Fleming's shed and build a dozen more and play Terraria and watch a movie on constant loop so that he doesn't have to think of anything. Walter says, you're not better than me. Blood is streaming from the bites on Anton's thighs, coating his calves and pooling in his socks. He doesn't know if he can bleed out and die standing here. As badly as he wants the apathy of not thinking, apathy is not an option. Walter says, you're not more deserving than me. That scorn sounds pathetic. Anton hears it, 
and sees Walter condescending at him and can only imagine himself and Walter spewing the same scorn at Pavla and Ioana. They're supposed to be the hands of a monster. They're supposed to do a shadow's work. Anton says, I never said I was better than you. The wind shifts rainfall, and a pair of drops slant under the umbrella, spattering against Walter's chin. He says, You people think you can walk away and live a better life, and you've got dirt under your fingernails to show for it. Right now, you're standing in line, in the cold, hoping for another day of back-breaking labor. You think it makes you better than me? His teeth are more crooked than Anton remembers. And they're duller. Anton asks, Is that what Mr. Bird beats into you? Is that what he says when he leaves new teeth marks on your heart? Walter is bleeding so badly under his suit jacket that it looks like he's wearing a red shirt with white bleached spots. That is the cherished place where Mr. Bird wanted Anton to be standing. He could have the honor of chief among sufferers. Anton says, I had to leave. I didn't want to do what you do. Get in the car. I thought he'd kept it secret from you. But you know it, don't you? Did he tell you that he wanted me to take your place? Or did you figure it out on your own? Walter throws the crocodile umbrella into the road. It rolls in a minor wind. I've run his household since I was 14 years old. You think you could do what I do? Anton pulls his cheap plastic sheeting over his head again, making a cloak that crinkles. His hair is slick enough with rainwater. He refuses to get any wetter. I don't want to scream at people and drive that shadow everywhere and pretend I don't care when he does what he does. How does it feel to stalk and scare gay boys into coming back to work so they can replace you, Walter? Does it make you think anything is going to hurt you less? The rumble of the car's engine is joined by a buzzing. An awful panoply of chirping sounds swirls from inside the tinted windows, inhuman and ravenous. They flow from every dark part of a drizzling world. Smothered in that noise, the two familiars bleed together. Anton refuses to look around for wherever Mr. Bird's shadow may be, or where his mouth is cursing them. He focuses on the young man in front of him. I'm not better than you, Walter. Me and Pavla and Joanna, we're not one ounce better. And we all walked away. That means you're capable of leaving, too. What made you think you could leave? That's not the story I'm telling today. The drizzle soaks Anton's pants so thoroughly that moisture drips off his shoes. It's a mixture of water and worse, leaving reddish-brown tints in the puddles behind his feet. It marks where he's been after he leaves. Of course, he apologizes. 
but apologies are not enough. For most of two weeks, Anton never lets himself be alone in the house with Louise. If Louise is home, then Anton waits outside for Grigori. He never forces the boy to be alone with him. He will not become that kind of specter. With some favors, he gets work with Grigori. Every second he has eyes on him is a relief. It means that if something will happen, it isn't happening now. The present tense is a sort of refuge. Together they flush out and clean gutters. He learns how to prune different kinds of bushes and how to cover his mistakes in ways that look artistic enough for affluent people to praise. Near the end of the two-week period, when he saved up enough money, he stands in the doorway of the house. He faces Louise, like he needs to be invited inside. A different invitation happens. Anton says, You want to hit the bar with me and Grigori on Friday? All you can drink on me. I could do that. There will be plenty of people there. Thought it might be fun. He doesn't say what will be fun about it. He shifts, letting more daylight into the doorway. Louise pretends to keep watching Winter Soldier, but he's clearly following Anton out of the corner of his eye. That's fine. Anton goes outside to sit in the sun, on the rough-hewn tree stump that scrapes his legs. He has a sketch pad and an active mind. He fills these hours by summoning old hours, drawing himself walking out of that dark townhouse, and Grigori's clunker driving them away from New York City, and himself digging other people's gardens. There are parts of the story he wants to draw, Wants to draw as badly as a kid wants to breathe when he's made a dare to stay underwater, but every time he tries to draw his thighs, he gets the scars wrong. It's been so long since he's had the nerve to actually look at his bare thighs. But he has his sketch pad, and the nubs of pencils, and time. He also has an aluminum bat resting next to the tree stump, just in case. Friday is St. Patrick's Day, which is Luis's favorite holiday. He glibly explains that the Irish got potatoes from South America to every patron in the bar, and explains it more than once to some patient woman. Anton and Grigori linger nearby to make sure he doesn't get in over his head, and so hear half a dozen increasingly dramatic versions of the story of how he got the scar on his neck. Anton tries to give Grigori space. The man wants to chat basketball and gripe about work with other locals. What matters is that he can see Grigori being safe, and that Grigori sits in a well-lit part of the bar. No shadows will encroach. With that amount of security, Anton goes and does foolish things. Foolish things, like flirting. In the shoulder-to-shoulder cramp of this St. Patrick's Day, there is Julian. Julian is a big man with glasses and a fine navy pinstripe suit, like a Puerto Rican Clark Kent. His soft voice carries in the booming crowd. He's adorable from the moment he accepts his drink by waving both hands excitedly as though accepting a newborn into his arms. Thanks to all his exposure to Louise, Anton is able to converse casually about Marvel movies, 
That takes them to art, and Anton makes himself talk about his pencil sketches. He tries to show Julian the nicer pieces, the ones that don't require him to tell a hard story. As he thumbs from sketch to sketch, Julian leans in exquisitely close, such that Anton finds himself hoping. Upon seeing Anton's sketch of his terraria base, Julian goes all high-pitched. They argue about whether terraria or Minecraft is better until the bar closes. The truth is that he's still too hurt inside to be sure if anyone can be attracted to him. That's why it helps to have friends. Louise slaps him on the shoulder. Getting after it, son. When are you two getting married? It's so bewildering and so exciting that he doesn't think about how long the shadows were in the parking lot. Not until the next morning. Julian lives in Brooklyn. He knows 8,000 better places to eat than the diner and two fast food places near Gregory's. The big guy can come too, Julian says. I've got a coworker that is starving for a man. Julian takes them to a burrito joint that is basically a closet, but where the food tastes like God. They go for tapas in this place with a view of the river. Their third date is at a Turkish restaurant that is spacious and so dark that a goth would complain. The dark doesn't bother Anton. Not at first. They watch as a waiter wipes down what will be their table when the app on Julian's phone buzzes. The waiter has an equally chic and shaggy haircut that looks familiar from behind. Then the waiter turns around. It's Walter. Anton is falling into the intense dark of the restaurant. He clutches at anything, one hand snagging Gregory's sleeve, the other catching Julian's. They get him by the elbows and raise him. He's sure his pants are full of blood. Walter hasn't seen him yet. He is busy setting out cloth napkins and silverware. He's different. It's like looking at an earlier draft of a person. His eyes are more sunken and carry greater distance. Simultaneously, his whole body is thinner, such that his button-down shirt and vest are baggy on him. Every exposed inch of his flesh is coated in a thick, unhealthy perspiration, like he's sweating something out of his system. Julian asks, are you okay? Anton stands free of their support. He brushes the thighs of his pants, which are surprisingly dry. He takes a couple steps into the restaurant, until Walter glances at him, and then another two seconds, until Walter sees him seeing him. Walter's head snaps at him in a wicked double take. He looks ashamed and frustrated, jaw setting like words are trying to force their way out. I need some air, Anton says, bumping into Julian's side. Can we go somewhere else? You said there's a good Vietnamese place? Grigori smiles mirthfully, even though he moves to stand between Anton and the waiters. I always wanted to try Vietnamese. They roll home after 2 a.m. 
getting up for work tomorrow morning is going to suck. Luis is passed out on the cushions with Terraria running. His character gets eaten by zombies, dies, respawns, and is eaten again, over and over. From Luis's snoring, he doesn't mind. The one thing Anton needs before bed is a piss. Through blurry eyes, he unzips and pushes his pants lower than he meant to. It's probably the inebriation that makes him look at his bare legs for so long. He pushes an index finger at the bites on his thighs. His fingertip doesn't fit inside them anymore. It's been so long that he took their ugliness for granted and hasn't checked them. They have shrunken and closed and turn a pale pink of old scar tissue. They don't look like they've bled in an eon. Is this a cosmic prank? His phone buzzes and he hits his head on the wall. A needle stick puncture of anxiety hits him. This is Mr. Bird. This is the revenge. His thighs still aren't bleeding. It's Julian's number. I had a great time tonight. Turns into, we should see more of each other. Which turns into, I know this sounds sudden. Anton rubs wetness from his eyes and asks, What's sudden? It started in college. Every spring, my best friends get together in a cramped cottage in the Carolinas. A nice part of the Carolinas. The food is grotesquely expensive, but I can cover you, and besides, Letitia brought her boyfriend last year, so why can't I bring mine? Will you think about it? Thinking used to be dreadful. It used to be. It'll only be a weekend, Anton explains. I'll come home. Grigori is so chunkily proportioned with such expansive arms that he gives unbelievable hugs. He holds Anton to his chest and says, You go wherever you want, buddy. It will be a road trip. Hour after hour of Gypsy Kings and Alejandra Guzman, Pricey Satellite Radio and Julian only wants two bands. They'll make a short detour in Delaware to pick up Letitia and her guy. Anton takes half a deep breath and asks, Can we make a second detour? He shows Julian the route. Julian's eyes bug out. He says, Further into the city? At midday? We'll literally die. But Julian is willing to risk death for a kiss. The detour takes them through a pristine burrow that Anton has not missed. Anton says, take this left. Five blocks after that left is the townhouse. On the upper floor, the blackout curtains sag from two windows. One has come loose entirely from its fixtures, exposing a triangle of the interior to the scourge of sunlight. Sunlight does kill some things. The front door is shut firmly. Its blue paint is chipped and flecking away, like the lines of roads on a state map. In fact, the whole townhouse's exterior paint job has faded from walnut brown to a sandy color with the same veiny cracks. The building has never looked so dry. 
the shadows of the townhouse are shorter than any other. All the townhouses on this street are a uniform height. Anton studies the shadows, sketching them in pencil in his thoughts. It begins with a meager sound, like a heartbeat under the building. The blackout curtains crumble and the glass panes tip inward. The front door yawns and melts from its hinges, lapping the parlor like a tongue. Julian is looking the wrong way, and so he misses the entire townhouse collapsing into a plume of unruly dust. Julian startles in the driver's seat. What the hell was that? Anton fishes out a fresh sketch pad, settles it on his thighs, and opens to a clean page. He takes a pencil and says, Let me tell you a story. So once you realize the story isn't really about vampires, the sheer emotional power of it just skyrockets. It's a beautiful and brilliant piece of writing. Small wonder that it was nominated for multiple awards and actually won the Locus Award. It's funny because while I was listening, I wasn't actually even thinking of vampires. It's like very clearly that is the mechanism he's using for this story. Mm -hmm. You've got the bites, you've got the word familiars. But I was just thinking like Mr. Bird, embodiment, of abuse. Yes. And that it was a very strong creative choice that you never actually see Mr. Bird. It's just about like how his behavior mm-hmm. haunts and tails him throughout the story. And I really liked that it explored the ideas of of staying and like choosing to stay versus right. being kept or held yeah. hostage. Codependency. Codependency, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, the movie Renfield kind <laughs> of touches on that in in but but obviously not as beautifully or as seriously as John does with this story. I'm almost ashamed to mention the two of them in the same <laughs> breath because it had so much potential, but it it really let me down. I'm probably going to rent it because I love a campy vampire story. I wouldn't spend money on it. If it's part of your <laughs> streaming service, God. that's one thing, but okay. you, know, you don't need to spend any it's money. It's a good tip. Well, that's a wrap for this episode. Any final thoughts, Nicole? Mm, I actually have a thought, but it's just coming to me now. It's hard to be surprised by a vampire story, um, and this one just really succeeded. So if you love short audio fiction as much as we do, please drop us a five-star review wherever you listen. And join us next time when we'll bring a dark, twisted take on Cinderella. Until then, pleasant nightmares. You're listening to Stories to Keep You Up at Night. Created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Every five minutes, a transplant candidate dies while waiting for a compatible heart, liver, or kidney. Imagine a technology that could provide those life-saving transplant organs for a high price, and imagine what a company would do to monopolize that technology. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists unlocks this holy grail of medicine by reverse engineering the genomes of all mammals, creating an animal with organs perfectly suitable for human transplantation. They envisioned a docile herd animal, but one team member had another, darker vision. This ancestor is anything but docile. 
The team's work spawns something big, something evil, something very, very hungry. Ancestor is a complete serialized fiction podcast by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler with all episodes available. Binge the entire story now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Stories to Keep You Up at Night, Episode 86, features That Story Isn't the Story, Part 2, by John Wiswell. It is produced by Marco Palmieri and Kaylin West. Associate produced by Angela Yee and Devin Shepard. And executive produced by Molly Barton, Julian Yap, and Mary Osadolahi. Hosted by Marco Palmieri and Nicole Otto. Performed by Vikas Adam. Audio edited by Corey Barton. Additional editing by Angela Yee. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi, featuring drummer Andrew Niven, and mixed by Max Kuttner. Cover art by Kendall Thomas. Find more shows like Stories to Keep You Up at Night by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm. <laughs>